I would like to propose a podcast in which lesbians from all over the world can listen to lesbian affairs, and that can include anything from flannel shirts to cats, cat litter, cat sitters, hot cat sitters, lesbian affairs itself, um, politics, radical lesbians, veganism, non-veganism, anything. Welcome to a lesbian affair. Welcome, welcome. We're back for another episode with me today. Um, two lovely ladies. Why don't you just introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Danielle and I'm a lesbian. Oh my God. It's almost like an anonymous meeting already. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Hi, I'm Sam. I'm also a lesbian. I am uh, currently in isolation with suspected coronavirus, which is why I'm on the phone. And I'm not reading social cues because I can't see Danielle or Jess. That's okay. Um, we'll, we'll try and keep you posted. I can describe uh, what Danielle is doing currently. She's kind of shaking her head because we've been trying rec to record this episode several times and we've just worked <laughs> out how to do it. Um, hi, Danielle. Oh, hi there. Just for the record, I shake my head a lot. I don't know why. Is it a dismissive lesbian head shake? I'm not sure what that is, you know, <laughs> but it's, it's always been there. So, um, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, I, this is not disapproval. It's just... Um, uh, maybe the way my neck's been designed, <laughs> maybe my head is too big. <laughs> yeah, I love I love just how you made it into a lesbian thing. Yeah, obviously we, everything. We like to claim like every man, every well, mannerism, every every method, every way of dressing, every way of acting is in some way lesbian. I, I I would say that you know having a flexible neck it's definitely a plus when you're a lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> but to be honest, we we probably I'm not will argue with that. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> We will probably um, uh, run the risk of making everything a lesbian thing on the show now and then, but it's usually a, a piece of satire because um, we represent who we represent, which is usually um, different aspects of life and, and we're three-dimensional people. So to attribute our three dimensions to lesbianism is, is sometimes tempting, but generally speaking, um, yeah, Danielle, I guess you're more than a lesbian. I'm a full-time lesbian. You're full-time lesbian. I think lesbian defines me in... <laughs> Um, there is nothing else that I want to be but a lesbian. What so, about Brazilian? Um, that's the thing. When it comes to cleaning, you know, cleaning my house and then organizing stuff, you know, nibbles because people are coming over. I'm very Brazilian. You say I'm coming over and I'll be vacuuming, cleaning, you know, uh, wiping surfaces just because that's what we do in Brazil. And I'll also be, you know, grocery shopping because God forbid someone turns up at your place and you have nothing to offer them to eat or, or drink. Um, so that is my Brazilian side. Um, I'm also a bit OCD when it comes to cleaning. Um, but this is where it ends. Basically, mm. this is where it ends. Uh, this is all the Brazilian I've got. Um, and it's, it's funny, though, because, you know, I've, I've lived in several countries and people always say, um, do you miss home? And um, obviously now I've been in London for over 12 years, so... London is my home, but I, uh, I normally say my answer to that is always, uh, home is where my favorite lesbian bar is. <laughs> and that, and that's funny because that's, but it, I know it's funny, but it's, it's, it's how I feel. It's, I, I feel that whatever it is that I, I can connect with lesbians is where I feel most at home. So is London accommodating of that at the moment? Because I would be hard pressed to say what my lesbian favorite bar is at the moment. 
Um, no, I think not in terms of bars. No, London is very disappointing. Uh, I mean, there are alternative uh, gatherings, you know, for lesbians in London. And then, yeah, uh, you know, these places are awesome. Um, but I, I, I do have to say that my favorite lesbian community is the one that I left behind in Brazil. Um, absolutely lovely. And uh, despite me being away for such a long time, still, I still feel pretty much part of it uh, whenever I visit. And yeah. So it, it is, um, I think, you know, my heart's still there for, mm. I don't know, let's say 65% of the year. Wow. We'll be what, talking. What yeah. is it about the community that you connect to? Um, I think, um, I think it's a very, um, political community, but without being heavy, uh, it's also mm -hmm. very hedonistic. Uh, you know, so people can be political and at the same time sleep around and have no problems with it. Uh, actually, sleeping around is a political act sometimes. <laughs> so, you know, don't buy that shit. This is just Brazilians talking. They just... Yeah. Um, I, I think, I think, but, but it's, it's true. I mean, um, um, you know, I know there's some... Um, there's a bit of comedy to it, but I think there's a lightness about Brazil, maybe because life is so difficult. Um, you know, people tend to be more thankful for things that in Europe you pretty much take for granted. Um, and it's, it's this lightness that I miss, you know, there is this sense of, um, belonging. There is the sense of, you know, what I'm, uh, uh, somebody got discriminated against in a shopping mall. So next, next Wednesday, we're all there kissing each other in public just because, you know, we need to make a point, but at the same time. It's just like, yeah, whatever. It's just an excuse to kiss somebody you don't know. <laughs> um, so <laughs> there's, um, you know, there's a way of, of doing, of, of making politics in Brazil that is a little bit more laid back. And then and, and, um, I wish there was a little bit more of that in the lesbian community in London. When you said politics, you mean that sort of like LGBT politics, not yeah. necessarily the actual no, politics. No, 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 I mean, LGBT politics, yeah. yeah. But I think they're not unrelated. I think um, America's really interesting in, in this way. I spent not very much, but a little bit of time in uh, New York and Washington, D.C. Both have you know, fairly vibrant uh, LGBT and particularly lesbian communities. Um, and there is something of a political history about those. But that's also because for all of America's faults, it has a really strong uh, history of civil disobedience. Uh, and, and Stonewall riots is really illustrative of that. And it wasn't outside of the context of other, um, you know, like the civil rights movement. Um, and so I think there is something about the way uh, we British people articulate ourselves politically, which is more subtle. And I think that does make for a slightly less outwardly political LGBT community. Now, I'll caveat that with the fact that I've not been out for that long. So my experience of being active in the LGBT community is, um, not extensive, but historically, um, I think, you know, in, in the States, um, the LGBT community and sometimes in opposition to that, the specifically lesbian communities are far more uh, politically mobilized. I just read this really interesting book, actually. Um, it was called Before Stonewall, something like that. And it was about... Um, um, lesbians and uh, gay men in America from 1900 right up to 1969, up to the Stonewall riots. 
and it catalogued the um, kind of fluctuations in the LGBT um, movement. And it was really fascinating to see how um, as different equalities, um, uh, the movements for different equalities, like um, black civil rights, were on the rise simultaneously other ones were such as feminism and gay rights um also danielle i'm reading a book that you might like uh, at the moment called finger licking good the ins and outs of lesbian sex i definitely have to read that i like how you kind of made the um bridge between a highly political historical sort of like <laughs> subject matter and a book that is about sex and kind of if, said danielle well, that might be for you <laughs> Explain yourself, Danielle. Um, what what like a reputation? My <laughs> reputation. I think I've, I've built a reputation for myself very quickly, haven't I? Yeah. Without having slept with anyone, you guys know. That, you know. Uh, are you really, or are you just saying that? No, I'm. I'm, I'm, I'm actually no. It's true. You know, I've, true, I've been in a monogamous relationship for about ten ten years now, <laughs> and that's going really well. Do you Thank have you. some awesome stories. You yeah. do have awesome stories. I, I do have really cool stories. That's because I'm quite old and I've been out since I was very young. She's lying. She's having really rosy cheeks here and it's kind of like sitting there. In it's her the youth. wine. It's just the wine. Um, but um, yeah, I think um, I, I talk a lot about sex and um, and I think, you know, women need to start talking more about sex. Um, I think as women, we learn to make excuses for uh, or, or we, we tend to shy away from our desire. We, we tend to think, you know, we have very complicated relationships with our bodies, uh, very complicated relationship with sex. Um, so I think I not only talk about sex because I like sex, but also because I, I want to break that. I want to challenge that. Mm. You know, I want to say, hey, hey, you should be fucking more. You should be, you know, uh, um, demanding more from your lover you should be paying attention to the kind of sex that you're having because that's important that has a you know that that will play a pivotal role in how you feel about yourself um so yeah i think this is how i've i've built a reputation for myself I and mean, people think of you know people read books that you know have all these uh, euphemisms they think about me <laughs> well we will um... but, that, but but the reason why i sorry just the reason why i su suggested this book actually is because it's written by an academic, uh, her name is Tamsin Wilson, um, who is also a lesbian, who is politically active, who is very open about sex and her sexual experiences, but also um, thinks about those in the context of the uh, academic discourses around feminism, around um, gay rights and around women's sexuality. And she writes, I've not finished it yet, but she writes about... Um, who um, polices lesbian sex um, and how there are, um, and she talks a bit about radical feminists, but she tries very hard not to define specific groups, um, but she talks about feminists who um, are very against certain forms of um, lesbian sex which replicate uh, heterosexual or what they perceive as as gay male sex hang on so let's just it, so, so, yeah. let's just be real there so um when we are talking about there's been sex that replicates heteronormative forms of sex we are we talking about strap-on sex are we talking about i think we might be talking about butch and femme dynamics all right 
Yes, all of those different things, all of those different things. And she, I mean, this is something that is just not a thing I have encountered at all. And I wonder if this is a, a generational issue and that if she, she was a feminist in the in the 70s and, and 80s. Um, and I think maybe those discourses have very much changed now because it's not something I've encountered. But she talks about how she had lovers who were really uncomfortable, firstly talking about what they wanted sexually because they were made to feel uh, not, not just by their experiences of patriarchal society, but but by women, that that wasn't okay, and that being a lesbian was about way more than sex, and therefore they should not um, be uh, overly invested in their sex lives. And she also talks about how those some of the women she was with were very uncomfortable. For example, with a woman being on top of another woman, uh, because that was how are you ever going to have sex if nobody's going to be on top? Sorry, this is a really... What, what um, have you been doing, honestly? Yeah, no, it's really interesting. So, like, the, the, the number of sexual acts that are, like, okay within, within that world are really limited uh, for political reasons, but really um, self-defeating political uh, reasons. No, I think, I think there, was, there was a place for that back in the 70s, back in the 80s, when people were still trying to define themselves. And, mm-hmm. and then, you know, whenever you came out, there were so many narratives that would try to erase you. I remember coming out in the 90s to my therapist and and then immediately I was, you know, shut down with, oh, this is just a phase. And eventually I got kicked out of of my my psychiatrist, my, well, her office. She just kicked me out and said, you're not a lesbian, get out of here. Wow. Um, So I think at some point, you know, and, and that was, that was... That was the 90s and, and you know, I, I come from a quite open-minded, fa- sort of open-minded family. But, you know, I, I have a very strong personality, so I was, I was able to kind of get over it and rise above it. Mm. But the women that came before me, maybe they didn't. And I had girlfriends, mm-hmm. uh, for example, that uh, much older than me at the time, that, you know, questioned certain things that I like doing in bed. And they said, well, this is not very lesbian, is it? And, and I never understood that because for me, there's absolutely nothing more liberating. There's absolutely no, nothing more political than a woman saying, this is my body. This is how I want pleasure. It belongs to me mm. and nobody's going to dictate, you know, what I want, you know, what I like in bed, how I'm going to enjoy sex. Um, to me, that's a, a political act in itself. Well, uh, I'm going to be devil's advocate because I find that particularly older strands of feminism, sometimes are extremely cerebral and heady and sex is Mm -hmm. not a cognitive act it's very much something that requires trust i agree but to a degree there's also a sense of um walking the line and understanding what each other's boundaries are and what what the person wants and what they don't want i I think it's a privilege that we have these days you know not to have not to be brainy not to be wordy not to have a theory behind what we do it's a privilege that we gained because other people, you know, had to go through building Agreed. the politics, the uh, the culture of being gay, what it means to be a lesbian, what it means to be a woman who loves women. So uh, the fact that we today can say, fuck it, I'm going to enjoy sex the way I want it. It's, you know, it's a privilege that we've mm-hmm. obtained because other people fought the fight that we're not fighting. I, I, I agree. I think the fight was about challenging stereotypes and, and patriarchy. And, and when we when I say patriarchy, I don't mean it like this, this throwaway word that gets a lot of attention and sometimes can just be used as a way of blaming something on a sort of like blanket level. When I mean that, I meant real deep socioeconomic inequalities between men and women that were... Um, 
cutting into an everyday life of every woman to the point that the private was political. Like we still so have that same issue, many, obviously, but it's a little bit more diffused these days. I think just like many uh, of us or you know, people that we know have experienced internalized homophobia, I think there's so many norms that, that people have grown up with. And a lot of those, included women's sexuality and how that was viewed now unfortunately for that generation of women that didn't just come from men but they that came from feminist lesbians well, not all feminist lesbians but certain groups of feminine lesbians who were trying to define themselves in opposition uh, and in so doing created more limits and i think that i think um for for a certain generation of people that that was also internalized well i think it's it's just so nuanced and complex it's it's First of all, I wasn't there then. I, I only know what I know from history books or from verbal um, oral history. Um, but as you rightly say, there were people who um, regarded themselves as um, supremacist feminists, the, the, the sort of like feminists mm. that, that were the the gold star, pure feminists, ideally lesbian as well. And then there were people who were anti-feminists and it, it was a different battlefield entirely. And being radical was actually something that was probably also really needed. I'm intensely grateful for the really radical lesbians of the 70s who paved the way and um, fought a fight against something that was um, extremely harming to just society. However, what I also sometimes think we forget is that women can be deeply sexist to this day too. Like we carry internalized mm -hmm. sexism to the point that if, you know, I've, I've had a female boss who was sexist towards me because she had internalized what it means to be in charge and, and that men are better at their jobs than women and, and that men are better managers. So um, I think I think there's more nuance to it. And when it comes to the bedroom in particular, I think what we sometimes forget is that um, each and every one of us carries different preferences, carries different consent boundaries. And, um, you know, lesbian sex is so diverse, like not one woman is the same. And I think that's beautiful, actually. That's, that's amazing. That's so. amazing. This is this is why I like women. And, you know, when I'm naked with somebody, um, it's it's about, to be honest with you, to me, it's about them. And it's about, you know, what makes them tick, what makes them um, have a good time. And that's what I'm interested in. Um, whether that can be classified as heteronormative, whatever it is. You want to, I don't care. You know, as long as people are having a good time, that's it that's 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 why you know that's why we're there isn't it mm. if you don't mind me asking what what sort of like um was your first sort of like attitude towards sort of sex in general you don't have to go into details but but um i for example kind of couldn't envisage what lesbian sex would be like i just thought um i think i like women but i'm not entirely sure what i'm supposed to do with them and can i Sam, can I go? <laughs> yeah, go, sure. Go for it. No, it's it's funny because I um I had quite a few male you know um, um guy um lovers before I had my first female lover, um and then um when I finally slept with that woman, I had decided before that I was a lesbian, and that was really important for me that the decision came first. I was a lesbian, and this is what I was going to do, and. Um, she was um, much older than, than, than I was at the time. I was 16, she was 32. And, and it's funny that I have no recollection of my first time. The last thing that I remember was um, apologizing for not having waxed my legs. Wow. Yeah. And Is that the Brazilian in you? It's the Brazilian in me, you know, um, we wax regularly. We, we have manicures regularly. Um, 
So I, I remember apologizing for it. And then she laughed and she said, no, she, I'm a woman. I don't care about these things. Um, and then, yeah, and I had this torrid love affair with her for about six months. And it took about 10 years for her to finally leave my life. Um, she was kind of my go-to person when I had nothing else to do, um, which was you know, quite interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I, it, the fact that I can't remember what exactly happened during my, my first time with a woman, I think is quite meaningful. I do remember my first kiss. It was quite romantic. Um, but I can't remember, you know, what happened there. I think it was just so powerful. It was just so big. Um, my first kiss was, you know, was, I remember saying uh, to myself later, uh, writing, saying, when I opened my eyes, I closed my eyes to kiss her. And when I opened my eyes again, that was the first time I saw color in the world. And, and that's, Aww. you know, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, I'm more, I'm way more cynical than that these days, but anyway, that's how I felt back then. And, um, so I think, you know, my first time, the first time that I actually had sex with a woman was probably so overwhelming. I can remember it. Well, I suppose it's better than the sort of like first time people remember, like one of the sort of doctrines I grew up with, um, or one of the things that my mom always used to say is don't expect your first time to be amazing. It's going to be horrible. Your mom said that. Yeah. I, and I've heard loads of straight girls say that. Like my first time with a guy was yeah, I've horrible. Heard that too. You've heard that too, Sam? Mm -hmm. I've heard that too. Yeah, I've heard people talk about it, their first experiences in uh, straight relations with their first experiences and then not being that good. For me, it was a very, um, my first lesbian experience was uh, very affirming. I'm not sure I had quite made that decision in the way that you had, Danielle. Um, and uh, I think there was, there was that element of fear of like you, you grow up in a in a world of um, of straight sex and you experience not everyone but you know many people many lesbians have experienced straight sex before they've come out um, and there's a, this notion of what is this other thing what is it, what is it actually like like what will it be like what will we do um, for me it was a very instinctual thing and it, and for that reason I think it was extremely affirming and I have the opposite experience in that it's a very very vivid recollection. Um, but, um, is it a positive one though? Yes. I think when she says vivid, mm -hmm. she means she can still replay <laughs> it to this day, like Ooh. a little film. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The personality led, uh, left a lot to be, uh, desired, but, uh, that's, that's some whole other story. That's interesting. We were talking about that just earlier. About... Like, who cares? <laughs> Sorry, I, I didn't mean to, uh, you know, belittle your experience. I'm just saying uh, sometimes you're just in for the sex and then that's what it matters. Mm. I don't know. I, I, do you need a good connection with somebody in order to have good sex? Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a casual sex kind of a person. I never was with men and never, and I haven't been with women. And I need that connection. It doesn't necessarily mean it always turns out to be a healthy one, but definitely a form of connection rather than something casual is really important for me. But people are so different on that. Danielle is like, biting her lip. Have... Go on. Um, I don't have an answer to that, honestly, because I, I think there's always a connection. The connection is always there. You know, uh, to me, it's, uh, it, you know, it's, it's, it's like when you're, 
when you're playing squash with someone. I'm sorry, it's a really poor analogy, but you know, you walk into the court <laughs> and you respect your opponent and you're in there, you know, to kind of squash them, squash them, you know, just, just hit it really hard oh, yeah. and have the best time that you can have it and be the best you can be and then bring out the best in, in your opponent. Um, opponent this is it's such funny a, isn't it it's, it's interesting like, language. please don't don't yeah. don't don't discourse analysis me because <laughs> that's gonna be but um i think this is pretty much how i see sex yeah um, it's a game it's a it's it's a it's a moment of fun and it's a moment for you know two people to uh, bring out the best uh the, the 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 best that each other can give at that moment and then mm. you have to make that you have to make that, you know, night or those days or whatever it is, those months. I don't, I don't know how you, you know, but you have to make it count and you have to make it, you have to make it good. Was, um... But I think that's where people's um, personalities, ways of operating, stages in their life and relationships differ. Because for me, I need uh, some form of kind of emotional connection to, uh, for that physical connection to to be yeah i don't think you were saying before jess about trust um for me does not necessarily just come from a physical thing so the the squash analogy works less for me but i think that also represents how different you know how differently people form relationships well i think otherwise i think one thing that's also very interesting in the lesbian world is we hardly ever we talk about butch and femme dynamics um Older generations do that more so, actually. these The newer ones don't really um, do that anymore. We, we have, obviously, queer culture now, which is way more um, embracing of fluid dynamics. Um, but what, for example, gay male culture does, which we don't necessarily do, is divide things into top, bottom, or switch, or power bottom, which is a new thing that I've heard. Um, do you think that applies to lesbian sort of like dynamics, too, when it comes to sex, or is that just not useful for us? I've heard that language used. I've definitely, I've heard that language used actually amongst younger people, people younger than myself. I'm in my late thirties and I've, I've read about that and I've, I've seen people talk about those kind of top bottom, uh, switch top from the bottom switch verse, all of those things. Uh, but younger people talk about that. And it's really interesting because that is a language that, that a lot of us associate more with, uh, gay men. I don't. I don't know. I think. Um, shall, shall we just explain what what that would mean? So, a top is obviously somebody who's more dominant, who's taking charge, who doesn't necessarily want to be touched as much as they touch. Even though Stone Butch would be Stone the extreme. Yeah, the extreme. Sorry, you you vanished there just then. Yeah, I think those two are not necessarily synonymous. I think not all tops are tops that prefer not to be touched. I think there are different types of tops. Okay. I think there are dom- dominant people who are dominant, but are happy for things to happen equally but they just prefer to play a dominant more dom- dominant role i think there's quite a lot of variation within those uh yeah one of their categories but you know what i mean okay and then and then bottom and power bottom what is a power button i think it's it's a it's a power it's, um somebody who's who's more passive but kind of like makes the top earn their topness i am not entirely sure <laughs> How do you earn your topness? Does it involve like We're slapping, obviously none of that pushing? Because none of us can relate to this at all. Yeah, we clearly are not used to this discussion. And we would invite listeners to YouTube or Google that and educate us. Just email us. What is a power bottom? Yes, please. It sounds very interesting. It sounds very violent. Um, okay, so um, my um, my experience. Wow. Yeah. Um, I think the butch femme 
as we learned it was it, 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 I, I never experienced it I never you know walked into a, a relationship where one night stand in which somebody said I'm a butch I'm, I'm a top or whatever it is so I think you know the lovers that I've had uh, fortunately for me I never came across somebody who was a bottom or at least you know or, uh, or rather I did but they didn't have the language for it they wouldn't say I'm a bottom uh, they were just like easily convinced to be you know passive mm. so um which was a bit frustrating um but i remember in my early days in the lesbian you know movement back in brazil uh hanging out with women and when i say early days i was you know 18 19 and i was hanging out with women who were 55 56 and they were very proud proud to say that they were tops and they were stone butchers they, they didn't define themselves like that they had you know they had different different kind of analogies uh, there's there was a different language for in the country for in for in portuguese but um this is what they meant they meant that you know they were the ones um on top and um and i always felt that that somehow you know kind of didn't make into my generation my generation is i was born in i was born in 76 I came out in the early 90s, so that's, you know, when I say I'm now 44, I'm going to be 44, so that's, that's, that's what I say, that that's my generation. I don't think that made it into my generation. I think um, the women that I've been with, they've always been very versatile uh, and happy to be versatile, I remember. I think there was, there was some taboo around certain practices, um, you know, amongst women who were a bit older, who, who were at the time a bit older than me. So um, accessories, for example, were, you know, highly frowned upon. Like what? Dil any kind of dildos. Yeah. Anything that looked like a penis. It was like, oh, my God. And then there was a period of time. I mean, now dildos come, you know, in all colors and shapes. There was a period of time in which you'd get just silicone dicks <laughs> or latex dicks. That's, that's how you could get, you know, in sex shops. Um, and uh, that was highly frowned upon. It was like, oh, you should like that, you know. You know, it should look like a penis. It should should look abstract at least, or something like that. Well, now it does. You know, technology back then it wasn't that. People back then, sex shops back then, they weren't that creative. Um, and I, I always said, you know, like it, it, I'm I'm the owner of my body. Whatever gets you know inserted in my body, it, it, you know, with my, it 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 does. You know, and it is with my consent. And there's a power in that. And nobody's gonna tell me that I'm a less I'm less of a lesbian because. I like this or that and the other. Yeah. You know, um, but, but that was a, an attitude in a language that was pretty much kind of belonged to a certain generation of women. Um, I think the older, the girlfriends that I had who were a bit older than I was, uh, they were a bit more uptight about it. But I don't know. I still think that when it comes to roles in sex for women, it, it's... Um, uh, it's it's really hard to define you know i don't think women are very verbal when it comes to defining what they like no i i agree i think um not once have i thought during sex i'm the man now or anything like that i'm always very acutely aware of the fact that i'm a woman and that i'm sleeping with a woman or if i'm not acutely aware of it it's it's still not necessarily one of those things where there's a conscious gender dynamic or whatever it's just two people you know connecting on a physical level and whatever happens during sex is um, unique and sacred to that personal dynamic. And there is no 
feminist or patriarchal doctrine or anything that's going to make me want to change that. Because as I said before, to me, it's a, it's not a cognitive act. It's, it's a consensual trust um, requiring, but also deeply emotional and enriching act that, well, I, I don't think you can constrain desire to a certain set of theories such as the 70s um, ideas um, around feminism, which said, don't wear high heels, stuff like that. Like, I don't know, I'm, I'm just trying to kind of like say, um, if you set up rules for society, usually they don't work in the bedroom. Oh my God, disagree. You look like you want to disagree. No, I don't want to disagree. Um, I... Um... Yeah, I think, we, I think, we, I think, you know, uh, yeah, I think just, I'll, to, I'll just to clarify, I don't condone, condone rape or anything like that. That's not what I mean. It is more about a consensual sort of like set of, um, you know, preferences that you just kind of like are in tune with or not. Right. Um, I think to be honest with you, I think a lot of what we think about sex and, you know, the taboos around sex, they're due to lack of experience. And then I'll always say, you know, you need to experience, you need to have as much sex as you want and as much sex as you need to have until you kind of understand what your body likes, what you're, you know, what, what makes you tick. Uh, so, um, no, like I, I will agree with you. Um, and, but I just, I just want to say that, um, sex is an empirical experience. You know, you cannot theorize about it. You just have to go, you just have to get out there and have as much as do you, it. yeah, just do it. But be safe. Please, yes. Yes. There's a lot of lesbians who still believe that just because you're sleeping with women, you can't get an STI or STD, which is obviously not true, given the fact that women sleep with men still sometimes. And women do drugs. Yeah. Sam, you're very quiet over there. Please feel free to disagree with anything I've said. <laughs> I'm processing. I think it's um I think it's a real shame when um we as um LGBT plus people and we as lesbians go to the effort of coming out and being authentic about who we are when we, I don't mean me personally, but people t still take uh, some of this baggage into the bedroom and they do feel like there's things that they can't do or they're not okay to do or they, um, yeah, not being like verbal and communicative about sex. I think it's a real shame when, you know, people work, have to go through so many hoops already to be who they are and then they get in that situation where they're intimate with another woman and they don't feel able to fully be who they are in that situation i think that that does happen um and i think it's a, yeah it, it, are you saying that in a way what we're working through here is not just the fact that we have to come out about being gay or being a lesbian or being queer or being bisexual but that the added layer of um internalized difficulties is just the mere fact that women have such a difficult relationship with their bodies and sexuality just just on its own like female pleasure is a yeah, taboo I mean, exactly yeah i mean look i mean viagra is just available everywhere and easily and the amount of research and money and attention that goes into male sexual issues sexual fantasies sexual dysfunction, anything related to male sexuality is very visible and prominent and taken very seriously. And with women, it's not. Um, and I think we as lesbians, you know, again, I'm not talking personally, but I think people are affected by that. Um, and when you have the double layer of um, accepting your sexuality and then you um, also carry with the fact that you're a woman in society and in a society that doesn't empower women's sexuality in the way that empowers men's sexuality, then for some people that is um, another thing that they have to um, 
uh, encounter and become okay with find themselves with um, and some of some of us are do that more instinctively and more more easily but definitely there exist women who um, do have to battle with those different layers of being okay with their identity I, I was just reminded of a story that a friend told me uh, like maybe one or two days ago um, she has a friend who works um, very high up somewhere in the film industry and this this person just travels a lot um, it's, it's a woman and um, when she travels she travels with her vibrator because she's a empowered lady with with certain needs and she doesn't have a boyfriend and she just you know travels with that i think out of the year she's she's gone for like 80 percent of the time and she had to travel to i think it was the united arab emirates and she forgot about certain rules and it was in her hand luggage and as it got to checkpoints all these guys kind of started you know with their fingertips dragging out this thing putting it into a plastic bag saying you can't travel in with this wow essentially saying female pleasure is forbidden here and and go buy yourself some carrots and um she she was laughing because essentially what she said then happened was that they were kind of like with a real sense of discomfort kind of like pushing this plastic bag with a vibrator from one man or male officer to the next because they just looked so ridiculous holding that and and just the level of discomfort that these men had holding that um was really funny to watch but on a different note, what a sad place to kind of be in as a woman to to kind of like have, I think there was different cases also where tampons were inspected. I'm not entirely sure if it was the same country, but, you know, there's this real sense of um, seediness surrounding um, both female anatomy and sexuality. So, yeah, it's really, it really affects people the way they experience their bodies. And I, um, I was in a relationship with someone from... Um, from a, a country in which women, an Arab country in which uh, women had far less rights and in which homosexuality is still illegal. And she talked to me about this. Well, firstly, I think um, notions of sexuality were kind of where we were a long time ago. So butch and femme were actually quite quite prominent ways of defining yourself. But secondly, she did talk about this, this issue with tampons and that was just like not a dumb thing. And she talks about her in her early 30s, her and her friend first, like, experience buying and using tampons because they weren't easily available and someone had bought them some uh, but there's all these things around women's bodies about how uh, that, that make um, women in those contexts not feel okay in their body their bodily functions what they choose to do with their bodies uh, how they define them how they use them mm. it's really sad it's sad Danielle. No, it's definitely sad and um, I remember I'm, I'm you know uh, permission to overshare so um, I went to Portugal once for my birthday and I was, you know, between two women and they knew about each other. And I said, you know, I'm just going to spend some time in Lisbon by myself to figure out what I want to do when I come back. I'll, you know, I'll tell you guys what's going to happen. And in the process, I bought a massive dildo um, because I thought that was, you know, cool. And <laughs> it was, it was hot. And yeah. And uh, one of these, one of the women that I was seeing and I, we had this kind of game and yeah. So, um, uh, so I bought a dildo and obviously I was traveling with hand luggage. And at some point when my luggage was scanned, they spotted, you know, this massive thing. <laughs> and the funny thing was that this guy who was sat at the scanner, he called somebody else. He called like a, a mate of his, you know, who was, uh, was standing by a wall right behind him. And, and he, he kind of waved him, waved at him. And then the guy, you know, approached and he, he pointed at the... Um, um, at the monitor, right? And immediately I realized what had happened. I said, well, they can see my vibrator. 
<laughs> uh, they can see my dildo. And then I looked at them and I said, you know, and, and they're taking the piss. They're like, they're, they're laughing at me, right? Uh, and then I said, no, I have, to, I have to flip this narrative. And I looked at them and said, you want me to take it out? You want to, you want to see it? You want to touch it? <laughs> um, and then they immediately went very serious and they said, no, no, madam, no, 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 it's fine. I said, well, no, really, because I can take it out and I can, you guys, you know, if you guys, if you guys are curious about it, you can see it, you can touch it. Like, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. Just keep it in your luggage and it's fine. Have a nice trip. <laughs> um, so, so anyway, yeah, nice it's, it's a bit, um, and, and that story made me really angry because I think, um, and, and this is where, you know, as women, you have to have, uh, you have to grow a thick skin and you, and, and you just have to flip these situations every time they, you know, as, as, as a child, you know, as a, as a, te- as a young teenager, I was often made feel awkward because I had my period. And then boys in school would make fun of me and then all of that. Uh, you know, at home, that, that the same thing happened. But I think we need to tell women that, you know, their bodies are fine. Their bodies are, you know, uh, their bodies are the reason why humanity exists. You know, half yeah. of the world um, are, is, is, is made of women. The other half is the children of these women. That's very, you know, uh, and, 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 and the reason why, uh, the reason why hum, human humankind exists because women are breeding humans every day so um <laughs> breeding humans yeah breeding humans aren't they? <laughs> little humans um we're yeah incubi but, we are but <laughs> but the thing is you know you shouldn't be ashamed of your body of your body you shouldn't be ashamed of your fluids you shouldn't be made, of, uh, be made you know ashamed of your pleasure and and i think as lesbians, the best thing you can do is for every lover that you have, every woman that comes into your life, you have to pass on that message and you have to make her feel gorgeous and you have to make her feel listened to and respected. I think that's the only way we're going to change, um, change things, change the world for women. I don't know. I think it's interesting because, um, for example, periods in medieval times, uh, in, in different translations, period is described as the secret illness of women like it's actually called an illness and it's called a secret and i think women have internalized that to a degree um i i personally am unashamedly fine with talking about my period but i think a lot of women still would raise an eyebrow saying oh my god please don't talk about that um at the same time what i find also interesting is this idea around um shame in general and and what you just did was you own some situation that they thought was shameful by actually being completely transparent and owning it and and, and just just saying yeah okay touch it big deal it's a dildo no men in airport is going to judge me exactly and the irony is that men actually have a a strange relationship to penises in the sense that once um they see a dildo it's like ah look at that woman but once you say uh yeah go touch it (laughs) it's kind of like i'm i'm not no i'm fine so um, I think is there something about security and, and feeling threatened underneath that humor? I think the bottom line to me is all human beings, no matter if they're female or male, sometimes harbor a sense of shame around private parts. And um, to a degree, I think evolution has designed for us to to be like that. Then there's religion and Christianity that are kind of like use that as a sort of like punching back and, and you know, be be um, what's it called? Uh, the idea of chastity and all that sort of stuff um, kind of like is layered over top of that if, if you're religious and then um, yeah I think uh, do you, I don't know do you remember the, the first time you felt ashamed of your body I, I remember distinctly like I, I was maybe eight years old and I, I was raised by 
fairly nudist parents so I had zero shame around that sort of thing and it was a school trip where we went to a public lido or swimming pool and everybody was using towels to get changed and because I'd never been taught to do that I just got changed without a towel and this guy or actually boy also eight years old came up to me and was like are you not ashamed <laughs> and that's the first time I thought shit I should be ashamed and to be fair he had a point because um I'm I'm very much not a nudist these days <laughs> contrary to my mother um but it, th there was a sense of it's, it's natural to be ashamed of certain things but at the same time it also kind of seeps into an internal working model that can be horrible when you you know later on kind of have interpersonal relationships or um other things particularly as a woman so yeah i, I think there's two sides to it mm, i mean i i see it happen with uh I have a niece who's seven and she's, she's already very conscious of her body and has been for a long time. I imagine that I was. I mean, I, I don't remember a specific instance, but I definitely be, remember just being conscious of my body. As I've gotten older, I care less and less. And actually, since I came out, I really don't care. Um, but I think that's also about um, my experience of lesbians in the lesbian community is of people um, valuing a variety of female bodies in a way that is... Um, feels much safer and appreciative than um, than not necessarily personal experiences of men, but what you know the, the messages we receive from society. I think for me, first time was puberty. You know, um, because before then, um, I I come from well, I had two brothers with whom I showered with. You know. Um, with whom I showered often, especially, you know, I, I grew up on the coast, so you're in your swimsuit a lot, you're, you know, in the beach, you know, on the beach a lot. You come back, you've got these hordes of children and they're all showering together because it's just easier for everyone. Um, so, um, but when everything changes, when you hit puberty, pu puberty and then you start, you know, you, your first period comes and then you, uh, you know, you, you, your breasts start showing and that is when, you know, you, you start being kind of, you, you get different treatment. You're told that you, you, know, you, you can be who you are anymore. You can be as free around uh, the other children as you used to be. And that was quite painful. I remember it was, it was quite painful when I had to wear my first bra. I was like, why do I have to wear this? You know, um, I remember crying saying, I don't want to wear this. This is stupid. Um, um, I used to share a room, a really big room with my, uh, both my brothers. And as soon as I started, I had my first period, I, I was separated from them because my, in my mom's words, uh, the boys don't have to see that. Um, so, um, I, and, and I think this is also, you know, defines a lot of the female experience, especially if you grew up around men, at some point, everything becomes about making the men comfortable. You know, mm. so, so, so the boys are not comfortable with a girl, a girl growing up. They're not comfortable with, you know, a, a menstrual blood. They're not uh, um, um, uh, uh, comfortable with a body that is developing, developing so fast. And, um, and my parents weren't very equipped to handle, you know, that situation. So that was, uh, that was the first, you know, that was when I, around that time, I started feeling very self-conscious. Um, but, you know, luckily for me, um, both my parents were workaholics, so they were out of the house a lot. My mom used to subscribe to every magazine you could possibly imagine. So I, I spent my afternoons reading magazines and encyclopedias. Um, and I learned that, you know, the, my body was natural and, and it was uh, healthy. 
Um, um, lucky for me, I had a lot of the equivalent of cosmopolitans lying around that ta- taught me a lot about orgasm. You know? um, <laughs> I had a similar experience. That's so yeah. funny. I, yeah. Anyway, finish. I didn't yeah. So I think that kind of compensated. You know, like um, my mom would say all these. You know, my, my my mom would say all these horrible things about you know my my body, how it was changing, how you know uh, the boys uh, were uncomfortable. And to be honest with you, my brothers are completely oblivious to it. They were just like, they couldn't care less. They just wanted to know if I could come and skateboard with them. Um, and um, yeah, and then when my mom went, you know, went out, got out of the house to go to work, I had all these female magazines that were supposed to make you, they're supposed to make you, you know, make women feel self-conscious and horrible. But to me, they had the opposite effect. It's, it's funny, I had a similar experience. And I'm not sure about you, Sam. I want to hear about your experience in a minute. Um around your body and, and, and maybe also magazines. Um, my grandmother had like these TV uh, magazines that kind of like told you what was going to be on TV. And towards the end of these magazines, there was always like an agony aunt type section. And I remember actually pretty much learning about sex through that because people were asking quite, you know, explicit questions sometimes. And one day I was reading this thing about a woman saying, oh, I'm, I'm so disappointed with my boyfriend. I keep using my vibrate, vibrator and sex is just not the same. So I remember innocently going to my grandma saying, grandma, what is a vibrator? And she looked at me <laughs> and was like perplexed for a minute. And then she said, well, well, I don't know about these new technical things. Why would I know? <laughs> I love how, how like that question was not about sexuality, it's about technology. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> I don't know about vibrators because it's too technological for me. <laughs> she was um, always very quick on her feet. But hey, <laughs> what about you, Sam? Um, I remember in my teens um, reading a lot of magazines. There was one called Just 17. I don't know if either of you would have seen that. Um, a few different magazines for, for teenage girls. And uh, I learned a lot about sex from there but sex was entirely about having sex with a boy in a way that is good for the boy I mean it was it was an alien concept like female pleasure in isolation from that was definitely an alien concept for me when I was growing up that's not what people talked about um so I which I I think had I think when I think back on it I think probably had quite a serious impact because I think that's the point in which I became aware of and then very quickly buried um, my gayness um, because it just wasn't, it wasn't a thing that I went to a girls' school and lesbian was absolutely an insult. It wasn't a thing people talked about. Female sexuality was not a thing people talked about. And when people talked about sex, they talked about boys that they wanted to have sex with uh, and the ways in which you have sex with a boy uh, or a man that, that is pleasing to them. <laughs> I remember I have one quite vivid memory from when I was about 14 or 15 and we were reading one of these magazines um, and it was about <laughs> having uh, different positions to have men and women can have sex with and one was uh, over a kitchen sink and uh, I, I remember us all being quite surprised by this, all being totally, totally inexperienced by this point and then I, I in surprise, shouted uh, very loudly because I found this very strange place to have sex um, something about having sex over the kitchen sink whilst my teacher was standing right behind me. Um, and um, I was always one that got caught um, for these things. But um, but yeah, definitely my, I mean, my friends were very obsessed about talking about having sex and who'd had sex, who'd, who'd had 
uh, yeah, who'd lost their virginity. That was obviously a thing that only happened with boys. Uh, but it was never really talked about with like what is good for a, a woman, what is good for a girl, um, what uh, and people were very in my school. I don't know if it's a girl school thing, but people were very very self conscious of their bodies. There were a lot of eating disorders, and then you know, unfortunately, I did not succumb to that. Um, though I was very aware of of my body, I guess in relation to other girls' bodies, um, but but people were not comfortable in their bodies, not comfortable in themselves. Mm, it's, it's tricky. I remember um, when I was in school, I had some horrible experiences around that because I, I was quite male presenting, not necessarily because I wanted to be a man. It was just um, a comfort thing. I guess I, from a very early age, didn't really um, like I put comfort first. And and I think now later in life, I, I really embrace my feminine side. And I don't mind wearing dresses and other stuff, but it's, it's just a sense of, um, yeah, when I was a child, I just liked to climb trees. It was quite tomboyish. And I remember sitting next to like um, a girl in class who was probably the most popular one, the most attractive one for her age at the time. And I had a crush on her too. I mean, I totally got why everybody liked her. And she would constantly get these little uh, notes flicked at her. And some of them were really abusive. Like one of them was like, how long are your labias? And stuff like that. Wow. And I, I kept reading them thinking, God, this is horrific. And um, then I started getting them just because I was sitting next to her, but in a really bullyish way. Um, and, and, uh, it was just really tough. And I remember one day I was wearing a top that was a little bit tighter and I had, you know, I was quite premature in terms of my puberty sort of progress. So, um, uh, this, this bunch of boys said to me, um, maybe age 13 or 12, um, can you stand up? And I stood up because I'm an idiot. And I said, do you, can you turn around? And I turned around and said, what's, what's up? What's wrong with you? And they said, it's okay. Can you turn around again? And that's when I realized that they were just basically looking at my chest um stuff like that where i was just thinking oh god kids can be so cruel particularly like teenage boys who funnily enough were not particularly developed themselves um but already kind of hypersexualized at that time and if it was bad for me being you know in my 30s now how must it be like for kids nowadays who kind of like are exposed to porn and everything so much earlier and have yeah and mm. um, yeah no definitely it um, I, I have no idea what, you know, life is life for kids nowadays. Um, I think, but, but one thing that I'm very sure of is that boys still get away with this kind of behavior. Shit. This kind of, yeah. And then the one frustration that I had was that, you know, girls were never protected from this type of behavior, predatory behavior. Um, you know, in, mm. in school, teachers always went along with whatever boys were doing. I remember um, I, I grew up in quite an interesting, you know, city it was a the biggest city in the region um, but it's also a region of a lot of farmers so a lot of the farmers children um yeah they you know, they they come to the city they go to school from friday to well sorry from from monday to friday and then in the weekend they work in the farms uh and then they have this kind of completely different rural lifestyle you know this completely different to what i was used to and uh, I remember there was this boy who, who had some, honestly, he probably had some sort of problem, but he'd come, you know, he'd, every Monday he'd come to school with horrible stories about having gone to whorehouses and, and how he was, you know, uh, he owned a whorehouse or he, he was treated like a queen, uh, like a king in a whorehouse. And uh, it was just like really, really heated stories. So when you say whorehouse, you mean brothel? Brothels, or... yes. Wow. Um, sorry, <laughs> my, my unrefined Is ways. it a literature translation? <laughs> um, this is a literature 
it's not a brothel. It is actually, you know, yeah. a brothel is like refined and nice. And this is, these are not... A seedy place. See, yeah. Mm. Um, so, um, and, and then he would just sit there and then tell all these, you know, just like start saying all these things. And teachers would just say, oh, please stop. But it wouldn't go beyond that. You know, he, he never got in trouble for it because he was just a boy. Boys would be boys, won't it? So I think... Yeah, and... And, and something th- is telling them something is telling was telling boys when we were younger and is telling boys now that this is okay exactly so i think um uh, you know now you've got the added pressure of social media and in every child that you know now, i was flabbergasted to see that my niece who's uh, i think 11 now she's already on facebook and she's already you know she already she, she already knows uh she already knows how to uh, make faces for a selfie and all of that and um, so you, you've got all the added pressure of trying to compete with everyone else on social media but all the behaviors and all the sexism and and all the nothing none of that has changed there's no safety net out there to protect women especially young women especially you know from this kind of of behavior from this predatory behavior so if in school you you know you got all these notes and all these notes flicked at you imagine now that you get that school and you also go home you logged in you know on twitter or facebook and you've got the same kind of behavior instagram instagram whatever it is and then you when you complain you're just being a bitch you're just being difficult you just you know you just you just want attention mm, i mean i think um social media is not going to go away i think the only thing we can maybe do as um adults or parents for for those of you who are is, is maybe kind of really create um uh, an area where where there's honesty and where there's education around what's going down there. We no, I think we have to, uh, you know, we, we have to face sexism uh, uh, head on. No, we just have to call people on their behaviors. We have to call out, you know, women when they're being sexist. We have to say, look, this is not, this is not right. You know, uh, boys, this whole boys would be boys narrative is bullshit. What you're saying there is important because I think I personally feel that women can be just as um, empowering of sexism as men. And I think we all unilaterally have to have the task to just, no matter what happens, um, kind of just, just to n- empower women or girls to, to, to speak up and to, to, yeah, just embrace who they are. And um, sexism can come from all sides. Um, and I think yeah, also, the, yeah, and, it can be targeted and, and, towards boys too, to be and, fair. Yeah, definitely. And then we just have to call it what it is. It is violence. Mm. You know, when a boy says something, when a boy asks you to turn around, whatever it is, it's violence. It's assault. But then again, and I'm again, devil's advocate here, and I, I usually am not, and I probably will get crucified for this. There are also girls who equally are exposed to this sort of stuff very early on, uh, who can be equally as powerful and as bullyish about male we have organs. to call them out as well and we yeah. have to say you're being violent and just because it happened to you it doesn't Online. mean you, yeah yeah so you're being you, vile you're being vile yeah <laughs> um and you you don't you don't have to perpetuate a behavior that was wrong in the first place i'm sorry it happened to you you shouldn't mm. have uh it's wrong yeah sam how do you feel about this you've, you've um yeah what's what's your i think i think it's also about conceptions of reality i think kids are exposed to pornography and they're exposed to it very young and I think that the parents just have to accept that that is reality um that's hard to stop um but I think they need to get the other message that just like what you see in Hollywood is not not a real love story what you see in pornography is not real sex that's not something they should aspire to or they should think 
sex is going to be like when they have sex. Uh, that is not what men and women's usual anatomy looks like. And I think parents need to be really brave and frank about uh, confronting that at uh, schools as well. Can we just... Um, in sex education. I'm sorry, yeah. But no, I think, you know, my question to you is, is, do you think this is a school's job? I don't think it is. I think this is everyone's job. Um, really, because I think, I think it's a school's job to single you out when you're being a jerk and say, look, we're going to call your parents, but uh, because what you're doing is not right. But ultimately, it is down to families to educate the children and to have these conversations with them. I would partly I, agree well, with I either of you. Two different... Yeah, Sorry, go on. Sam, <laughs> no, you go on first. I think there's, there's two different things there. There's, there's bullying, and I think when, whether bullying takes a sexual or other nature, that needs to be pulled out by the school. Um, but I think there's also understanding of what sex is, and sex education exists in school, exists in school from when kids are, you know, seven, eight, and then they really start learning about it as they go into secondary school. Um, so that that already that, that exists, but it's about that education also being understanding of what it is that children are exposed to. And so it's um, about um, re-educating kids because kids experience um, pornography and, and these sexual images. Um, and sometimes not just through pornography, but through, you know, adverts on the tube where you see half-naked skinny women or, you know, very muscly men or whatever, wherever it is they get these images from. Um, I think that also, I'm not saying... Uh, information about sex should only come from school, but it does come from school. And if it's going to come from school, then it needs to be re-educating in a way um, that is acknowledging the messages that kids get in the 21st century. Um, and sex education, when I was a kid, was um, mostly about reproduction and about wearing condoms. Uh, and then when I was about 14 or 15, you learned about periods as well, which for most girls was too late. And that was, that was what sex education was now. Now, uh, in those days, now it is a bit more nuanced, but it doesn't acknowledge the messages that kids are getting through pornography, through social media, through, you know, your you know, billboards that they walk past. Um, that's not to say that parents, it's not parents' responsibility as well. It absolutely is parents' responsibility. Um, but I think... Yeah, I think there's a lot of denying of what it is that kids know uh, in a, of sex in the 20, 21st century. I'm going to be devil's advocate here because I think that what we're ultimately talking about, and I, I'm an utter idealist about this, is also the fact that we do not care enough about educating parents or parents-to-be about what it means to be a parent. I think it is probably one of these things that just happens And, and there's so many people out there who um, suffer from childhood dynamics or from some certain fa family dynamics um, because somebody just along the line, you know, had unprotected sex or because somebody along the line really wanted to have a child because they needed an identity extension or a sense of purpose in life. Um, there are so many unfit parents out there. And that sounds really persecutory. So I'm going to reframe that for a second. There's also very vulnerable parents out there who are going through shit themselves, which was anticipated. That part of me says, yes, it is a parent's job to help their kids and to make sure that the best thing happens. But sometimes the community has to help too. So there's a saying of it takes a village to raise a child, right? Um, maybe there's a point in sort of like saying schools kind of have a job in this, even though it is um, putting a strain on, on teachers and, and educators. I'm not a parent. Uh, I just know that, uh, you know, 
I, I know why I don't want to be one because is is um, it's it's bloody hard, and it's also you know um, it's a it's a very ungrateful thing to do, isn't it? I mean, you're always going to be blamed for, blamed for something. You're never going to get it right. You never you're never going to get it right. So um, I think you know the only thing that I can say is that being a parent is hard. Yes, parents need support. They need help. Um. But also, you know, sexuality is complex and, and, and a lot of people have loads of taboos around it. Um, we, we just witnessed uh, last year this, this massive wave in Birmingham, I think it was, uh, when, when, it, when schools were trying to have uh, sex ed classes. Uh, and they, they brought in, you know, they started talking about LGBT issues and there was this massive backlash from the community saying, you cannot teach my child that. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's also, you know, um, if raising children is hard, I think parents make it even harder by, by not allowing society to help and by, you know, shutting themselves off from what's actually happening with the world and thinking that their child is going to be innocent and virginal for, I don't know, until they're 30. Well, I think it's tricky because uh, what we're saying there is, is not all parents are shutting off. Some parents are. And I think what, what it boils down to is the fact that everybody has different values and assumes that these values are the best for their child to also have. And um, I think it, it, what we're maybe not talking about is, is the agency and the idea of um, children developing their own preferences and, and their own ideas about religion, their own things around things. I don't know. It's such a difficult thing. I feel like it's a topic in itself. And I also feel really not equipped to talk about it because I have to acknowledge I'm not a parent myself. So usually the people who are not parents tend to have like these luxurious opinions about stuff. Mm, yeah. Um, and and uh, to be honest with you, if I were a parent, you know, you know, you know, if I picture myself like with a teenage child, which, you know, in puberty, in puberty, I'll be saying, fuck around, but be safe. And I'll be trying to have all these <laughs> conversations saying, you know, like, well, fuck around, but you know what? It kind of is going to mess with your head a little bit. So just, just mm. remember that when you think you're involved, you're not actually involved. And then I, when I hear myself saying all these things, I was like, this is so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and I like, there's no way a teenager can understand what I'm saying. There's no way they can, you know, uh, uh, what, what is, you know, when, when you tell a teenager who's in love for the first time, that you know honestly let's move on you should be fucking around you shouldn't be you know sticking to just fun. it's just so wrong bottom um, line is we don't know what we're talking about sam <laughs> save us i think <laughs> i think it's hard for one generation to understand another generation i think it's hard for parents to understand kids and kids to understand parents and therefore when you yeah you have these notions of i want to bring my kid up in in this way um and then you, uh, I'm a parent, so I speak from experience. Um, yeah. So I think I think there's different things. I think when you um, you have these notions of how you want to bring up your kid, but then your kid is growing up in a really different context, then the messages and the values that you thought you knew how to convey don't necessarily always translate well. And there is a lot of extra work there in in, um, in ensuring that you know you give your kids values, but values that um, they can work with in in a time that you didn't grow up in. So there's this bridging that gap of understanding and experience and context. I think also um, our generation is, is probably the first real generation where people have been um, far more significant in being making proactive decisions not to be parents. And I don't think people 
of the generation before us necessarily knew that was an option to them. Um, I think it was really unusual in my parents' generation for people to make a decision to not have children because they, because they didn't want one or for whatever reason. I think it was an assumption um, that you have kids and that doesn't necessarily mean that you are able to parent well or equipped or, you know, yeah, you come with your own baggage and your own trauma and, and, and whatever. I think um, in the society we live in now, um, it is more... And I think it's, I still know people who take flack for this, um, but it is far more accepted to decide not to be a parent um, and for that not to be a like, hugely controversial thing, um, which I think makes for more purposeful parenting. But then again, there's the problem that lesbians maybe face more and more, which is back in the days it was normal for lesbians to not have children, quote unquote, mm-hmm. normal. Uh, because the possibilities just weren't there. But I think we're moving now into an age where um, more and more lesbian couples are absolutely fine with the idea of having children because of IVF and artificial insemination or co-parenting or rainbow families, as as some of them are called. And um, that kind of is like, um, well, some people say that's heteropatriarchal normalization that's creeping in. I don't necessarily know if I would want to go down that route. Um, but it makes it difficult for some queer women or lesbians who equally still don't want to have children because there is a certain um, stigma attached to that now, even within the lesbian community. So it's 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 tricky when these sort of things happen. It's quite interesting. Danielle is oh, sighing. No, this is this is uh, you know this actually is is uh, a very painful subject for me because I'm sorry. No, 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 it's not painful in that way. It's just um, it it's one of those sore spots. But um, so when I came out at 16, one of the things that I was really happy about is that I wouldn't have to conform. I wouldn't have to marry a guy and have children. And I was over the moon about that. You know, I didn't. Oh God, yeah, amazing. Like freedom, I was going to have a how you know a, a, a life of uh, traveling in Day debauchery. debauchery. Yes, exactly. Pure debauchery. That that was that was my life, which worked well. You know, um, uh, I, I it was was really good. You know, my my, my decades of debauchery in Brazil was very very <laughs> prolific, very good. And then I moved to Europe. Um, I was thirty one, thirty two when I immigrated. Um, and I think I was about 32 to 33 when I started dating again. Um, and it was just so painful because that was just like at the height of I lesbian IVF thing, you know, and you'd see you open up Diva and there were like three, four adverts of, for IVF, you know, clinics and, and sperm donors, uh, sperm banks and all of that. Uh, and every woman I want, I went on a date with wanted to have children and they wouldn't take me seriously because I would just say, uh, I, I, I just want to have fun. Um, or, you know, I just want to see where this goes, but you know, I was, I, I wasn't, I wasn't very, I wasn't adamant that I wanted to have children. I was actually adamant that I didn't want to have them. And that immediately put, put all these women off, um, um, Later, when I met my wife, um, that was something that she expressed, you know, like, I, I really want to have children. Um, when she proposed a while after we had met, I said, look, um, I'm not going to say yes. I'm not going to say yes until you, you know, you decide what you want to do. 
you know, uh, regarding this children's subject because I'm not going to have children. Um, I'm very, you know, um, it, it's, it's, it's non-negotiable. It's a deal breaker for me. And if you want to have children, I think you just have to find somebody else. Um, so I felt, you know, somehow um, betrayed by my own community. I was sold a package that said, you know, come and be a lesbian and you're going to have fun and amazing sex for the rest of your life. And suddenly, you know, at the height of my life, and I'm 30 something, I have the coolest hair um, <laughs> and I have a lot of energy. Suddenly these women are like, no, you, you gotta want to have children to play in, you know, with this toy. And I'm like, fuck, that's so disappointing. And even today, you know, I've got friends um, who went on and, you know, had children. And I've obviously, you know, I'm I'm happy for them. Um, They spent shitloads of money. They went through hell to, you know, to have those children. So I'm really happy that they finally have the family they wanted wanted to have. And I'm happy for every lesbian that that managed to have the the family they they always dreamt of. Um, But I I just feel it's just so unfair. You know, especially for women at my age, who I'm, I'm not really old, but I'm not really young. And we were left behind, guys. We were told and we were sold the story and suddenly the music changed. <laughs> and you know what? Some of us, they're not really happy with that. Well, it's, it's such a tricky thing, isn't it? Because I'm similar to you. I um, have always considered myself as somebody who doesn't necessarily want children for for different reasons um i'm open to the idea that maybe one day will change probably it's going to be too late by then um but i've also heard the narrative from my mother from anybody from friends from ex-girlfriends from ex-partners you know just wait until you you know mid 30s or 30s your opinion is going to change you will have the urge you will have the itch you will want to have children and so far nothing has sort of changed um let me mm. jump on that and let's say I, I did have the urges. Did you? The urges are hormonal, you know, they just, your body, your body is designed to, you know, to breed. Why? What's wrong with my hormones? I don't know. I don't know. No, I, I, I'm not saying, I'm not implying that there's something wrong. I'm just saying that in my case, um, the, the urge was there. So um, I, I was about 34, 35 and the, the pull, the, the urge was really strong. Maybe I have to wait. And then it came but back. What does that feel like? Why was that not societal? Why, why, why was that hormonal rather than societal? I'm, I'm not sure. You know, it might have been societal. It might be, it might have been because, you know, I've, I've had so many dates, so like frustrating, so frustrated dates with women that I mm. fancied, but they wouldn't sleep with me because I didn't want to have children. And I was like, yeah, it's not like you're going to impregnate me, is it? So I might as well. Um, anyway, um, sorry, cut that out, please. <laughs> um, I, don't think I, but, um, I don't want to cut that out. <laughs> Keep it. Um, yeah, anyway, so, um, I, and then I think eventually I gave in. I was just like, oh yeah, maybe I do want to have children. But um, I, I'd rather think is a hormonal thing. So um, I did have the hormonal urge to have children. Um, and I remember I was like 34, 35. Um, then he came back when I was around, uh, 38, 39 and, um, I'm, I'm 43 now and it's back. Right? Really? Yeah, it is back. Uh, but now I've, I've known it. <laughs> I've given a name to it. Like we're friends, we're pals and it doesn't trick me. <laughs> it doesn't get to my head anymore. You know, so I, I just know that I get a little bit, uh, warmer when it comes to children. Like I see children go like, 
oh, you know, like mm. uh, uh, I'm nicer right. to them. Um, not that I was horrible <laughs> to them before. <laughs> I've always liked children. I just don't want to pay for them. Um, Oh, <laughs> this is so funny. Yeah, you well, never stop paying. I, I love it. Like you, you, you pay through your nose until they're like 45. <laughs> you know? And then they become unemployed and then you Hang have on. to support them again. Hang on, Danielle. You're 44, right? Yeah. You pay through your nose until they're 45. Interesting. Now, my mom my mom's not paying for me. She stopped paying for me when I was <laughs> like just 18. <laughs> She's definitely not paying for me anymore. Uh, but if you, if you ask you ask me about my brother, it's a different story. Oh. Yeah. What about uh, you, Sam? Like, like, did you have the urge? Do you think it's hormones? Uh, I'm not sure hormones. I I always liked kids, um, so I think that's that's different. I just I think kids are really cool. I always thought kids were really cool. I like the way they think. I'm more on the same wavelength as kids than adults. I think a lot of the time. Um, so it wasn't a big leap for me, but it also, but it also wasn't anything I questioned. I mean, I absolutely made the decision to to have a kid because I wanted to. Um, but I also operated in a, in a, in a world where that's what people did. You, I, you, know, you met a man, you got engaged, you got married, you had a child. Um, so it's not a thing that I questioned. Uh, I mean, I, I said what I did before about people making a decision but, uh, to not have kids, but it wasn't something that was really a question for me because I like kids. Um, and so I never thought that I wouldn't um, want to have kids uh, so it was, a, it was a very natural evolution for me mm. um, but I also lived in a really different world then uh, I, I don't know had I been out from I've only been out for, um, for over a year had I been out um, from a, a younger age I, I think I probably still would have wanted to have a child um, and I'm, I'm sure I would have actually. In a way, that's nice because you know I'm aware that in a way Danielle and I have sort of like very similar viewpoints. There are a bit of a Venn diagram, so it's nice to have somebody who has a different experience as well. Because I'm pretty sure that people who listen to this will come from different corners, and there will be people who passionately and and and, and um, completely positively have a desire to have children, and and that is just as valid and just as important. And as I always say, it's nice for queer people and lesbians to have the option like one thing that i really am an advocate of is no matter if you believe in marriage or having children it's nice to have the option so mm -hmm. um, yeah thanks for, for that experience right i um, have um oh, sorry sorry i no. always have straight friends who are articulate who don't have kids who, who are you know with long-term partners and chose not to have kids for all of the reasons you just articulated well, there are other ones like overpopulation. There are so many people who could be adopted. I've, I've heard all arguments, to be fair. Yeah. I think some people have the instinct and that's it, you know, and, and, and that is regardless of their sexual preferences. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I've got two cousins who are fabulous, you know, fabulous women who uh, are amazing mothers. And then they'll say the same thing. They say, you know, what takes, you know, what it takes to be a good mother is wanting to be one. Um, and I, I think that applies to everybody, you know, straight or gay, lesbian, whatever. If you want mm. to have children, go ahead and have them. I'd uh, like to extend that to fathers as well. Yeah, fathers too. Um, because but, that's, that's another thing that we don't talk about. I, mean, I know this is a lesbian podcast, but if we were to talk about the amount of absent fathers in people's lives, that would be a whole different story. Uh, well, I come from a country where people say, you know, mother is mandatory, father is optional because... Wow. There's a high percentage of children wow. that have no no fathers in their birth certificate. You know, mm. father unknown. 
is a common thing in Brazil. Um, I come from a family where there are lots of fathers unknowns. My own mother, uh, it was a fa- she was a you know un- she had an unknown unknown father um, until he came back when he was like when she was four. Wow! And then by then she had been you know adopted by by my uh, grandmother's partner. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it's more common than we think. It's interesting because if I th- look at my history, I. Um, come from a family where well, my grandmother's father was lost in the war when she was three years old so she didn't have a father and then her mother was an orphan she didn't have obviously the experience of either mother or father so um, again it's interesting how generationally even just if you look back two generations you can find an absence of at least one caregiver but um, that's a different story so uh, I think the conclusion is mm. we've lived in, in very very fortunate times yeah yeah, I, yeah. Sam, do you want to have the last word? We've been recording for a long time. Um, do I want to have the last word? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm very grateful to be able to talk about lesbian sex and sexuality and things when I'm sitting by myself. <laughs> you know what? It's, it's been amazing that you, I mean, I feel so bad that you've got coronavirus maybe, but at the same time, it's amazing for us because we got to have you on the show <laughs> one more time. So yeah, that's really thank nice. you very much. Um, how, how are you going to be dealing with the next seven days? Are you going to be okay? You're in isolation right now. As, there's going to be a whole lot of ne- Netflix going on, I reckon. Unfortunately, I've already watched all of the L words, so I don't know what comes next. Have you watched Sex Education? That's what I was going to say. Watch Sex Education. I, I only really liked it for Julian Anderson. That is enough of a reason to watch it. Do you know what Sarah Wine once? Sorry, I, I met her. I met Julian Anderson once. I used, I used, I used, to, work, I used to work in this really nice, um, um, you know, restaurant in Marylebone when I first came to London. Wow. And then one night, um, Julian Anderson was one of our guests and uh, I served her oh wine. If, oh you, if you were to have a lesbian affair with somebody, I mean, Sam knows the spiel already. Would it be Julian Anderson or would it be no, somebody else? No, it would be somebody else. Who? I don't know, several. <laughs> how much time we've got uh, I think I would like to start with Carla Johansson because she's so hot oh yeah 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 and then I've got another celebrity crush which I'm kind of like ashamed of admitting it but I do and that's Kira Knightley right yeah Interesting. I know and she's so skinny she doesn't have the big hands that I like but it's fine we need to talk about your preference for big hands another time don't yeah you? definitely <laughs> Sam, how about you? Is Doctor Who still at the forefront of your thoughts or have you kind of like had changes over the last few? It's not Doctor Who, it's River, it's River Song. I would like to be Doctor Who with River Song. Wow. And that's not a change. I'm sorry. I, I, was, that uh, I was talking to my to my girlfriend the other day about like who our free passes are and I'm like, it's still River Song. She's like, you know, it doesn't count if they're a fictional character. You can't <laughs> actually have a free pass to be with them because they're not a real person. And I was a little bit upset by that. It's, it's but it okay. was true. We'll, we'll I, don't, I don't want to be with the woman who plays River Song. I want to be with River Song. She travels time. She's very bright. That is... She looks hot. Yeah, I think oh, that's the best so argument. Right, everybody. So thank you so much for taking the time, and um, let's let's do this again sometime, as usual. It's been a pleasure. Right. Have a good one. Be healthy. Yeah, stay healthy, everybody. Thank you, guys. Bye. 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 Bye.